The very sudden silencing of the COVID narrative that recently happened does not mean that the battle for medicine is over. Rather, it likely means that organized medicine thinks it has won the campaign or that they are now focusing on new strategies to ensure the full destruction of good medicine. I beg to differ with any presumptive conclusion that sound medicine in America is dead. The war is far from over. In fact, it is just beginning. We in the medical field are being put to the test as never before. Little did we know when we first entered medicine that the day would actually come when we would be punished for doing the right thing, for doing good to our patients and for remaining faithful to our oath as doctors. And now for the past 18 months or so, almost every day I hear of another doctor being persecuted by tainted medical boards who receive their instructions and their cues from a Nazi style guiding body called the Federation of State Medical Boards. But let me tell you something, we are fighting it, and believe it or not, the battle actually has been brewing for well over three decades. Only recently, it has come to a head. You're listening to Unity Without Compromise with your host, Dr. Steve Latulip. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to a great patriot and medical doctor who recognized the assault of medicine early on and who has been fighting this battle for quite some time now. His name is Dr. Richard Ammerling. Dr. Ammerling is New York City born and raised. He's a nephrologist who studied medicine at the Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium. And he completed his residency at the New York Hospital Queens. He then did a nephrology fellowship at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and after 26 years as an academic nephrologist at Beth Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City, he then served as professor of clinical skills at St. George's University in Grenada. So you can see that Dr. Ameling has been around a little bit. He has written and lectured extensively on nephrology as well as other healthcare issues, and right now, He is spending his time battling corruption in the American system of medicine. I welcome you, Dr. Ammerling, and I am so glad you could join me today. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. I'm glad to hear you're here. I am so excited to hear what you have to say. You know, I have to mention, Dr. Ammerling, that before I invited you onto this show, I did not realize something that you wrote back in, you published it in July of 2013, and that is the Physician's Declaration of Independence. I was very impressed with that. It's, a, it's quite a long declaration, as you might expect, but I'd like to state uh, just one thing that you started out with. You said that we hold these truths to be self-evident that the physician's primary responsibility is toward the patient and that to assure the sanctity of this relationship, payment for service should be decided between physician and patient 
and that as in all transactions in a free society, this payment be mutually agreeable. Now, how timely is that right now? I mean, gone is responsibility to the patient. Gone is the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship. I just have to ask you, Dr. Ameling, what inspired you to write a physician's declaration of independence in 2013? Yeah, in fact, Stephen, I think that that might have even been the revised version. I think I wrote it earlier, uh, but that was... It, it, it was became clear to me that doctors were becoming progressively enslaved by the medical industrial complex through the various payment schemes. And that the only way to, to reverse that w- was for doctors to declare independence and get out of these third party payment schemes. Uh, and if doctors had <clears throat> heeded this call, we would not be in the situation we're in right now but too few followed along. And we ended up with the vast majority of doctors in the country becoming increasingly owned, enslaved by corporate interests, the government, whatever, and fewer and fewer truly independent physicians. And once the independent physician group is gone, uh, it's gone forever. So it's so important now to push back and retain at least a small circle of freedom, uh, as Twyla Braze likes to say, uh, around the medical professionals who stay independent and who stay committed to the patient-doctor relationship. Well, I'd have to agree with that completely. If, but you say we need to retain a small circum, circle of freedom. I'd like to see rather that we expand our influence to bring back some semblance of sanity to the system because ultimately patients are suffering. They are the ones that are receiving the brunt of the tyranny that we right now as medical doctors face. And um, if the system cannot be fixed, I agree with you, there's just no way we're going to be able to bring that back. You, you made uh, a comment just a little later in that declaration, and what it really is, is a three-pronged attack against the sacred patient-doctor relationship. Uh, and I quote you, only such a financial arrangement will guarantee the highest level of commitment and service of the physician to the patient, restrain outside influence on decision-making and assure that personal information be kept confidential. Now, it seems to me in in the new system of socialized medicine in big business medicine, those three things seem to be essentially gone, are they not? Yes, uh, outside of the small number of direct pay practices, uh, that hopefully is growing. I don't know, but that's re- where you still retain a certain degree of autonomy and patient confidentiality. Yeah, doctors gave up the profession in so many ways. And one of the first things that they gave up was confidentiality. And that went, that went away without a whimper. There was no pushback when it came time to turn over sensitive diagnostic information to the third-party payers Doctors complied. They didn't put up any kind of a fight. That was a gross violation of 
patient confidentiality. They have, no one has any right to that information. Just because an insurance company has a contract with a patient to support their payment of, of certain you know, bills, that doesn't mean you have to tell them anything at all about <clears throat> what went on in that exam room. But you're increasingly required to do that. And giving that up was a huge blow to the stature of the medical profession. And it's one that we can only recover if we go back to direct payment again and take the government and the third party payers completely out of the picture. And it also uh, assures that you're gonna practice in the best interest of the patient. When you're working for a third party, whether it's the government or an insurance company or a hospital company, you have to follow their guidelines. And that was the other aspect of the takeover of medicine that I started to appreciate uh, in the, in the, in around that time, I guess in the mid 2000s uh, and early 2000s was the increasing encroachment on medical decision-making being pushed through evidence-based medicine and guidelines, which were completely hijacked by pharmaceutical industry. Okay, so you know you're you're discussing a, a few different issues that I really want to take up in some detail, but let me back up a little bit. You, you mentioned that doctors gave up confidentiality. Now you're, I have to tell you, you are expanding my horizons, Doctor Amerling, because um, in some ways, I mean, unless you're really thinking about it. Um, you don't realize what's taking place as it is happening. I mean, we live in a time right now since the COVID pandemic uh, assault has battered us uh, as patients. We see that, you know, everybody's told, well, we need to know your vaccine status. And that seemed to me a slap in the face uh, because it was a blatant surrendering of confidentiality. But what you are saying is that anytime a doctor is asked to submit justification for, say, obtaining a test like an MRI or a CT scan or to get approval for a procedure, um, we are giving up confidentiality when we submit that information to uh, an insurance company. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely correct. And we, if we had <clears throat> said as a profession that we're not going to do it, everything would have changed and we, we would not have gone down this road. That, that first step was really the biggest in a way. And no one and even the, really recognizes it. <clears throat> well, I have to agree with you because I must confess, I really did not recognize it for what it is. And as you're telling me, it's like, my goodness, how could I not have even seen this? On the other hand, I recall so many times just being utterly frustrated and angry because I had to speak to a bean counter who knew nothing about the patient, who knows nothing about medicine, and that person would yay or nay uh, the decision uh, for me to proceed as I saw fit for my patient. So I think that is something that is just extremely devastating. Uh, why did we not act on that um, if it was even recognized earlier on? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I became aware of this because when I was a medical student in Belgium, they stressed this issue. They had a very strong ethical foundation in their medical formation. And they stressed this issue of patient confidentiality. And it stuck with me. 
So when I came back to the States to, to do my training and practice, it, it was striking to me that we had given it up and we're in the process of giving it up in greater and greater detail. And I, I remember being appalled when you first had to start coding diagnoses to get paid by Medicare. And then ultimately the other third party payers did the same thing. The American Medical Association, not only did they not push back against this, they wrote the coding books that the government uses. I mean, truly this is a betrayal of the, of the medical profession and the AMA is a disgusting organization that has no justification. They are a quasi-governmental organization at this point, and no ethical doctor should belong to that group. Well, you have my full agreement on that. And it, when you talk about uh, the AMA and, and producing all of the diagnostic codes, my goodness, they've become so egregious, so burdensome, that uh, it becomes almost impossible to even try and fit the proper code in. I cannot tell you how many times I was denied payment simply because they told me that I did not submit the right diagnostic code. Now, I thought as a doctor, I was the one to decide what the diagnosis was. Mm -hmm. But I think you're exactly right. Um, it's a way of manipulating doctors, bogging us down to the point that we are so frustrated that we raise our hands and surrender to anything they want to throw at us. And I do believe that's exactly what has happened. So Steve, let me just correct that because I, I think I gave the wrong uh, impression. The AMA wrote the CPT codes, the procedure codes. And okay. those, books, those books are used by the government. In fact, they pay the AMA royalties every year, which are a lot of money, millions of dollars for the use of the coding of the procedures that are used in billing. The diagnostic codes are the ICD codes, and those started out with eight, nine, 10. Now I think we're up to 10. And with every version of the ICD codes, which are come from a different organization, they become more and more detailed and complex. So there's, you can't hide anything. Everything, you, you know, there are different codes for left and right kidney. I mean, it's, it's absurd. So the reporting requirements now are so detailed and onerous that there is nothing secret at all in any medical encounter that goes on an electronic health record. And once you're on an electronic health record, it's wide open, basically. It's hackable. It's it's seen by many, and you sign away your confidentiality at your hazard as a patient. Yes, and, and just to emphasize, you know, the how complex, how detailed, and not only that, but how ridiculous the ICD-10 uh, codes are right now. I mean, I believe that there are diagnostic codes for a patient that has been injured or traumatized by a meteor for example. Okay. I, yeah. I read that myself and I thought, you've got to be kidding me there. If, uh, if a person was bitten by say a hobo spider or a brown recluse, there are codes that must be selected to determine if this patient was intentionally bitten by right. a spider right. or, or, or not. So th this is just, it's beyond absolute ridiculous. It this is, is just it laughable. Is. 
And what do you, I mean, what is the purpose of doing that? What do they gain from that? Yeah, I wrote about this a few years ago, I think in Newsmax, a Newsmax article on the ICG-10 coding, because they multiplied the number of codes by a factor of 10, literally. There were 10 times more codes than had existed in the ICG-9 system. Uh, they were absurd, or many of them were absurd. <clears throat> and it's the more information they have, the more levers of control they have. <clears throat> that, that's my, that was my interpretation of it. <clears throat> by the way, sorry. <clears throat> it also made it impossible to practice in a third-party system, if you're building insurance or Medicare, without a staff of coders. <laughs> Right, you could not run a practice. You had to have professional coders who would code Absolutely. your encounters, sure, so that you would get reimbursed. Right. So that and added to the cost of running your practice and adds adds to the cost of medical care in general. So, where do we go yeah. from here? I mean, you know, you talk about the necessity of having independent physicians. Now, I, I investigated that a little bit, and I found that in May 2021, the AMA, the American Medical Association, reported that, quote, physicians in independent practice are now a minority in the United States. So I think that was the turning point where less than 50% of all medical doctors uh, were, were in independent practice. Now, why is that happening? And is this just a coincidence that over half of all physicians are now employers? They're hired hands of the system? Or might this be actually a strategic plan to implement a socialized uh, form of medicine? I think it was always intentional that they get as many physicians as possible under the aegis of either the government or a big corporate practice. And it's what I call, and others are called now, the medical industrial complex, which has taken over medicine. They didn't want independent practitioners because number one, they would push back against uh, tyrannical government policies, which we're seeing now in all their glory. And of course, where are the independent doctors pushing back against them? They're few and far between, obviously. And they also wanted doctors to just become vehicles to prescribe more and more pharmaceutical products. And the more you're under uh, a controlled system, the more you're going to be likely to do that. You're going to follow the guidelines. The guidelines, which started out as recommendations, became standards and then laws, basically. You know, you can't deviate now from the guidelines. You've got to prescribe what they tell you to prescribe. You've lost your autonomy as a physician. And once you lose your autonomy, you're finished as a physician, if you can't practice according to your best judgment, well, you might as well turn it over to AI <clears throat> or some lower level provider who has a tenth of the medical formation that you have and uh, just retire. You know, you're not really practicing real medicine anymore. You're just following a cookbook. Sure. I agree. The, the, uh, <clears throat> it goes just beyond um, being controlled. I mean, we are actually, not just being told what to do, but we are being censored. If we oppose it in any way, we are called misinformers or disinformers, and we are um, no longer have any authority to challenge anything or to question anything medical or scientific. And that essentially removes science from the field of medicine. Now, how scary is that? 
Yeah, totally. And, you know, the, the number of truly independent practices is much less than 50%, because even those who may still have a so-called private practice are doing insurance company medicine fundamentally, right? Everything they do has to be approved by the third party payer who they're using. And that restricts their ability to provide good care. So the sure. only truly independent doctors out there are those who are direct pay, who have gotten rid of all of their insurance contracts and just take payment from the patient. And that was what I was encouraging back with the physician's declaration of independence with, uh, my idea was that we are the essential element in medical care. They can't do medicine without us. Although maybe they can now with all these, uh, you know, lower level providers following the guidelines. That, that's really always been their goal. But if we said en masse that we are not going to comply, that we're going to declare independence and just ditched all these third party contracts, they would be left holding the bag. So we have the power as doctors, and we still have the power if we could all get together and, and just reject all this stuff and go back to treating patients one-on-one uh, -on -one as we see fit and get paid by them. And there are so many models out there to do this where you're not charging the patient an arm and a leg. It's really very reasonable. And that's really what has to happen if we're going to save medicine. Well, yes, you know, you, um, you mentioned another, uh, another topic that I think is really critical for people to understand. You wrote recently an article, this was on October 6, 21. Um, it's called COVID-19 response and the tyranny of evidence based medicine. Now, I was initially surprised at the title because the words evidence based medicine taken by themselves actually sound very good. I mean, practicing medicine based on the best scientific evidence is, is a really good thing. But I was actually um, taken back initially because I thought that evidence-based medicine might be a good thing. And you had suggested that it was not. And in fact, when I was attacked by the Oregon Medical Board for practicing medicine based on the best evidence, um, I, I was just totally destroyed by a corrupt medical board because I did not practice politics-based medicine. But what you're saying in this article is that evidence-based medicine essentially has become politics-based medicine. So um, I wonder if you could just touch on that and, and talk about that, explain that, because I thought that was very intriguing to hear that comment. You also mentioned, you know, in the article that you cited a doctor who said he depended heavily on the World Health Organization guidelines. And your response was, that's the problem. The guidelines are consistently wrong. So how are the guidelines wrong? And what is going on with evidence-based medicine? Well, let's start at the beginning of evidence-based medicine. Uh, sounds great, as you said, but of course, there are many problems with it. And I became aware of, the, of these issues through my uh, research into guidelines. I first started to see guidelines appear in medicine in the early 2000s. And I immediately sensed that this was a bad thing. Uh, and looking into it, it only confirmed my fear. These guidelines were written by panelists, almost all of whom, or the vast majority of whom, 
had deep financial conflicts of interest with the pharmaceutical industry that they are writing guidelines about. They're writing guidelines about drugs being made by these companies and they're invariably coming down on the side of recommending more and more drugs. So it, it clearly was corrupt from the very beginning. And when I look more deeply into it, I realize that what they're relying on is this whole construct of evidence-based medicine. So evidence-based medicine, as you said, was the, the idea behind it was to incorporate so-called best evidence into clinical practice. The problem is who defines what's best evidence? And they set up a hierarchy of evidence, which was arbitrary, uh, with the randomized controlled trial initially being at the top of this pyramid. And at the bottom were uh, you know, clinical observations and so-called anecdotes. Sadly, it should be the other way around because clinical experience is the bedrock upon which medicine was constructed. And the randomized controlled trial doesn't answer all the questions uh, ever, ever. And they're easy to fake, manipulate, and create a result that you want. Uh, in other words, let's say you have a drug uh, to lower cholesterol, you can, and you know that it's not going to have a big impact at all on mortality, right? So you create a, 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 a mushy uh, multiple endpoint endpoint, right? Like major adverse cardiovascular events or MACE, things like that. You lump together all these events as your endpoint. So you, you have a lot of fudge factor room there. You then uh, do the power equation so you know how many subjects you have to enroll in both groups to get the p-value that you want with the expected benefit. And they knew that the expected benefit was gonna be tiny and it was, right? So let's say you get a reduction of these events from uh, 3% down to 2%. Well, you know that's not much of a result, right? It's a 1% reduction. But if you divide one by three, you suddenly have a 33% relative risk reduction. And that's the number that they push and promote. So, right. so it's very deceptive. It's deceptive. So the RCTs are widely manipulated and used by industry to sell products. And now they're being used to tyrannize doctors who dare step outside. You know, they say you don't have any evidence to support the use of ivermectin. Well, yeah, we do have a lot of evidence. Look, when I left Grenada, uh, when COVID first hit, because they closed the island, and I actually ended up volunteering to do nephrology up in New York at Bellevue, which was quite an experience, um, my colleague down there had to handle the eight cases of pretty sick patients who came into the hospital with COVID during the first wave, okay, back in uh, March and April. Well, he treated them all with hydroxychloroquine. That's all they had. Every one of them resolved their pneumonia and walked out of the hospital. So that's a series. That's a case series of eight patients treated successfully. Do you need an RCT when you have such a dramatic benefit from a drug? You, you know that the process, if left to, it, to its own devices, was going to get worse in at least a significant number of these sick patients. When they all get better and walk out of the hospital, that's enough proof for me to suggest that this is a good therapy. You don't need the RCT. So doctors 
have been brainwashed into thinking that they have to have not just the RCT, but they have to have the stamp of approval by some august guideline committee uh, that you can go ahead and treat patients. And that's why the majority of doctors in the face of this horrific pandemic did nothing. They followed the NIH and the CDC and the WHO guidelines to do nothing, let patients get sick and then bring them into the hospital where, where they can essentially be mistreated and killed uh, with uh, bad treatment. So they- well, that's, that's exactly what has happened. That yes. is a fact. Yes. So, you know, what, what you're saying here is that, first of all, the guidelines are, are wrong and they are just arbitrarily set up. You have an arbitrary hierarchy of evidence with the randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses at the top, according to this medical faction. Um, but they anecdotally uh, tell us that uh, any evidence based on clinical experience is at the bottom and it means nothing. Right. And you're saying that's not true. And I, I would have to agree completely with that. You actually said, and I quote you in this article, we use science logic, deductive reasoning, judgment, and clinical experience. Wow, what a concept. And, uh, you know, any doctor who has been in the practice of medicine for some years understands full well the weight that clinical experience has on treating COVID patients or any other kind of a patient with any type of a problem. Um, the practice of medicine is very much um, an application of science, but it is also an art in knowing when to use what medication, when to intervene with a surgical procedure or otherwise. It takes clinical experience to learn that. Well, we are going to take a short break and be right back with you. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. 
Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Welcome back to Unity Without Compromise with Dr. Steve Latulip and my guest, Dr. Richard Amerlin. Remember that my show airs at 12 and 5 p.m. Eastern Time, and then it goes to podcasts. These podcasts, as well as my weekly columns, are available at americaoutloud.com. I ask that you please look at those, read them, and spread the word. We have a lot of good patriots associated with America Out Loud, and we are getting out the word of truth that is going to change America and get us moving back in the right direction. Well, my guest, Dr. Richard Ammerling, is a seasoned nephrologist and an eyes-open kind of a physician, and I love him for that, and I've learned a lot from him. And I have been discussing today the dark journey that has led to the confiscation of sound medical practice. Now, you would hardly think that the process of erosion actually began in the early 90s and maybe sooner than that, but I can absolutely vouch for it because I went to Loma Linda University starting in 1993 as a new medical student. The world of medicine is changing and it is not looking good. Those were the introductory words that I heard when I began my medical training. And how far down that wretched slippery slope have we come? What is now considered the new medicine is nothing more than follow the recipe of those who work for large pharmaceutical companies that are interested in making a whole lot of money. And what's missing? Good science, sound logic, based on rational medical decision-making. Good judgment based on actual clinical experience is now about gone with the new breed of doctors, or at least the establishment of medicine in the new world order would like it to be gone completely. Now, Dr. Amerling, after CEOs took over medicine, I used to think actually that if only doctors could unite and take back control over medicine, um, we might be able to win this war. And in fact, for a time, I actually thought that Mm -hmm. it might happen pretty quickly. Uh, In the good old days, if you remember, drug reps would come to the clinic and invite doctors out to elaborate outings and to the finest meals in exchange for hearing their sales pitches for the latest wonder drugs. And all of a sudden that kind of went uh, aside and it was stopped saying, you know, that's not right because it's adding to the cost of medicine and medications. But then they went after those who paid the salaries of doctors. So Dr. Emily, do you actually think it's even remotely possible that doctors would ever be able to unite and again to become independent or to remain independent? I mean, what's it going to take? 
The doctors are not going to unite. Uh, I mean, if they're not united now, they never will. But we have to just chip away and get more and more doctors to get out and re reclaim their independence and their autonomy. Uh, you know, I went down to teach medicine for largely this reason. I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't just wanting to be down in the tropics and go sailing, which I love, but I wanted to have a role in the formation of medical students to try to get them to learn to think and be clinicians. I ran into many roadblocks and I can just share with you some of my uh, take home messages from that whole experience. First of all, the admissions process is, uh, shall we say, compromised. The, the quality of the candidates that are applying to medical school is so much lower than it used to be. For example, when I applied to medicine in the 70s, I had a 98th percentile score on the MCAT science portion. Nevertheless, I could not get into an, an American medical school in, in 1975 and in 1974, which is why I ended up going to Belgium, where, by the way, I had a great time and an incredible education. Uh, but now we're looking at 50th percentile uh, MCAT people and saying, wow, they're great. Let's take them. Right, because we're, we're going even below that. And that's not good. That is just not good. And the medical education itself, I think, is being progressively dumbed down. There is less and less time devoted to mastery of the basic sciences, such as anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, pathophys, pathology, which are really the bedrock of the medical profession. If you don't have a strong scientific background, you're not really going to be able to think very creatively about what's wrong with your patient. And you're gonna end up having to just follow the guidelines. I then proposed to the curriculum committee doing an elective course on comparing a guideline approach to various disease states with a science-based approach to those same disease states and compare and contrast and see who is producing really the better results, the better outcomes. You would think that they would say, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Well, they voted it down. This proposal for an elective course was rejected. Uh, so you see where things are headed. The control of pharma over medical education is so dramatic and complete. They control the medical literature. They control what articles get published. They control educational events. I, I, I can tell you this for a fact, because at one point I was what they call a key opinion leader in various areas of nephrology. And I was uh, doing speak, speaking engagements for drug companies, uh, pushing products that I believed in at the time, but I realized that I was really you know, part of their marketing arm. But when you're in their good graces, then you're suddenly getting invited to these medical, big medical conferences and you're, 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 you're on the speaker list, right? As soon as you cross them, which I did, uh, you're no longer invited. You're persona non grata. You don't get invited to the, to the big conferences anymore. So they control so much. They control the guideline panels. They, they, get, okay. they get a say in who gets on them. Right. So, okay, I just want to, I don't want my listeners to have to read between the lines. So correct me if I'm wrong. What you are saying is there is an intentional dummying down of medical students. There is a selective process and the selection 
is for those who will comply with guidelines that ultimately is going to make someone very, very wealthy and or very, very powerful. Is that not what's happening? That's right. That's right. And it, it, it's even worse. I mean, the diversity movement has infiltrated uh, medical education. I big hat tip to my former colleague from University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Stan, Stanley Goldfarb, who has written about this first in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. And now he has a book out about this takeover of medical education by the uh, critical race theory people, fundamentally. You have, to, you have to be woke now if you want to get into medical school. You have to show on your application that you did lots of community service. Why? Because they want people to be into volunteerism, right? They want, they want people to be doing medicine for altruistic region, reasons and be satisfied with a diminished salary, which is what they're getting, by the way. So what do you think? I mean, with the big picture here, um, what is their end goal for those taking over medicine? Because, you know, my concern is that right now in medicine, everybody is so narrowly focused. I mean, it seems like all we ever hear about anymore are discussions about COVID. And it's all about politics. It's all about propaganda. I mean, they're still pushing the COVID boosters. And now they're vaccinating young children and they're talking about masking again, even though we know beyond any doubt that none of that has yielded anything good. Um, but we have not only dummied down, we just can't seem to discuss medicine anymore. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I think what this is going to lead to, um, I mean, we're, we're headed toward a frontier form of medicine anymore where you, you're not going to get quality scientific studies. You're not going to get doctors with good experience based on actual knowledge, as you said, because they studied the hard sciences that make us good doctors. So uh, um, it seems to me that our only other recourse is to either set up an, another alternate course to train people who want to become good doctors and independent doctors and doctors who care about the patient first and foremost. And then the other avenue is that we're going to have to teach patients how to take care of themselves. Uh, where do we go from here? Well, those are the, those are the excellent points. Uh, and I think that that is what we exactly have to do. We have to take over medical education and also get patients uh, educated on how to live a healthy lifestyle. You know, what's gone on pre-COVID is horrific in medicine. And you can start with the dietary guidelines back in the late 70s, which pushed people away from the healthy fats like, like eggs, uh, butter, uh, coconut oil, lard, et cetera, that we had been eating for centuries. And suggested that we now have to eat these artificial uh, vegetable seed oils and margarine. And <clears throat> at that point, the health of the nation took a big turn for the worse uh, with the proliferation of all these uh, fake fats. And then the addition of high fructose corn syrup to almost everything. So the, the health of the nation began to suffer greatly. And when you fast forward <clears throat> to the last few years pre-COVID, you see life expectancy in the nation declining. 
why is that? Why? Because we're telling people to eat a very unhealthy diet, and then we're treating the diseases that these, this diet causes with medications that in most instances either don't work or make it worse. That's pretty pathetic. You know, I even see uh, among many independent doctors, I mean, I think that a lot of these people believe that if we do educate the public on these things, on healthy diet and on just healthy lifestyles, um, then these people will not comply with the tyranny. And I hope that is true, but I'm still surprised to see how many people still remain completely under a veil of deception. And sometimes I just wonder if these people are reachable or if they are actually content in their make-believe world. It seems to include people from all walks of life. I mean, with all levels of education, socioeconomic classes, it's almost as if we are seeing a religion of the woke. And so what more can we do other than speak the truth and um, try to bring, bring back some level of sanity? Um, where do we begin? Uh, you, you, when you talk about training people to become real doctors again, if you will, um, how do we accomplish that? Well, I'm actually working on that right now. I uh, can't go into details, but uh, give me a couple of months and I will. Okay. But, you know, th there are, there are a, there, I, I see that there are two big driving forces behind what's going on right now. One, of course, is pharma, right? They want to sell as much of their products as they can. And believe me, they are. And we're helping them in that mission, you know, by be, being willing uh, prescribers of what are mostly toxic products, including these uh, mRNA uh, products that they're saying are vaccines. They, they don't work. They're extremely toxic. There have been many deaths and injuries with them. But that has been true all along. I mean, uh, so this is just kind of the final nail in the coffin of good medical practice. And doctors, sadly, are going along with it. And the other aspect is the tyranny aspect. Governments want to impose tyranny on the population by uh, calling to these medical issues. Medical tyranny is what is underlying the power grab that we have seen over the last couple of years where people have been forced to lock down, stay at home, uh, quit their, uh, you know, quit, stop their businesses, uh, wear these ridiculous pieces of crap on their face that do nothing just except make them sick and give up their constitutional freedoms for a uh, virus that virtually everybody survives even without treatment. So this tyrannical system that was put in place requires passive go-along doctors. And that, that's what I was getting at in my follow-on articles of the first one, which I call the Nazification of American medicine. And I really hesitated long and hard before using that analogy. But when you think about what happened in Germany in the 30s, it's not that different from what is happening now. The medical profession in Germany joined the Nazi party enthusiastically and went along with the, which what was then so-called the science in Germany, which was eugenics. We have to purify the race by eliminating the unfit and the unhealthy, eventually the elderly, sick kids, kids who are born with disabilities, et cetera, and eventually the Jews. So they, they cooperated with this. 
in the United States, what has the medical profession done in the face of uh, these policies that don't work, the lockdowns, the masking, the distancing, the shots, the cover-up of effective treatments such as hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, the censoring and harassment of doctors such as yourself who dare to question the narrative. We have been complicit in what is, in effect, pure Nazism. I, I just got a, a text from a patient that I'm consulting on who's a diabetic with kidney disease, and he was just recently started on dialysis, and he went to the transplant center where he's being dialyzed, and he said, put me on the list. And he said, well, if you're unvaxxed, we're not going to give you a kidney transplant. This is Nazism, okay? This is not justifiable by any scientific idea. It is pure Nazism. There is no study to show that these shots are safe and effective in patients on dialysis or that they make transplantation outcomes any better. This is pure Nazism, and we have to push back against it. Well, yes, you know, we actually uh, are increasingly in good company, I think. I mean, we actually now have thousands of doctors who do believe that following the COVID guidelines is still yet going to lead to many thousands and maybe millions uh, more deaths globally than we've already seen. Are you among those, those doctors who actually believe that the worst might be yet to come based on the entire COVID response? Well, the COVID response has been far more deadly than the vac than the virus. The virus, by far. I mean, the effect of lockdowns uh, it, uh, in and of themselves, forcing millions, if not billions, into poverty, and uh, the kid, the effect on kids missing years of education, being forced to wear these stupid masks, giving them upper airway infections, limiting their ability to hear and and. You know, see what people are hear what people are saying to learn, forcing them to learn remotely. All this stuff is so deadly. The virus itself is eminently survivable by the vast majority, particularly now with Omicron, which though it can be nasty in a handful, mostly is not. Again, the issue should be we need to improve the metabolic health of the population and thereby their immune competence. And that has been de-emphasized by the government by the government committees. They never talk about this. They never talk about dealing with the metabolic syndrome, uh, losing weight, eating healthy, getting your vitamin D. Never, never. It's only the vax, a needle in, in every arm, as Peter McCullough said. Right, it, right. And and the truth is, what you're saying is that you know by them not talking about the, the things that actually improve one's immunity. What they are doing is promoting everything that squelches the immunity and isn't in fact that what we are seeing uh, in those who have taken the fake vaccine, because it is truly a bioweapon, in my opinion. I do not understand how anyone could declare it anything but that. I, I completely agree. The, the idea that you're going to give an untested mRNA platform to people with no way to turn it off. It's going to be producing what we know is toxic spike protein in uh, unmanageable numbers and unquantifiable numbers. The spike protein uh, sticks to platelets, activates them, sticks to the lining of the blood vessels, promotes clotting. Uh, 
does it goes to all the organ systems. It gets into the brain. It is uh, a toxin. We're, we're, we're the mRNA vaccine, so-called vaccine, is in effect a virus, right? It, you're you've got this particle that's infecting cells and taking over their genetic machi- machinery and their machinery to manufacture a protein. It, it is acting just like a virus, producing a toxin. This has never before been done. The idea itself is abhorrent. It should never have been used. And not only has, is it being used, it's being mandated and forced. So this is horrific. I agree it's a bioweapon. And we have yet to see the extent of, the, of damage. It's going to be massive over the years with the suppression of immunity, the increased number of cancers, increased susceptibility to viral infections. We're only seeing a tip of the iceberg at this point with real vaccine complications. Absolutely. And uh, let's not forget uh, the problems that may result uh, from infertility. Oh, yeah. Due to to the damage of the gonads. Yes. The multi-organ damage, I agree with you. It remains to be seen. Um, I hate to be uh, uh, any bringer of bad news, but the fact is when inflammation takes place throughout the entire body, it does an awful lot of harm. And some of that harm simply is irreversible. So Dr. Ammerling, you have a tremendous amount of medical experience behind you. What is the best advice that you would give to Americans as patients in this world of broken medicine, if they want to protect themselves? Well, it's relatively simple. It boils down to a few simple things. First and foremost, if you're smoking, don't smoke, obviously, okay? If you're drinking excessively, cut down, okay? Alcohol is a poison, right? Very tiny quantities are good. Anything more than that, you're, you're poisoning your body, brain, heart, etc. cetera. Uh, if you are eating, consuming these industrially produced seed oils, such as canola oil, soybean oil, or these are the big ones, stop, stop. Go back to using butter, lard, bacon fat. Uh, these are healthy fats. You'll, your health will immediately improve if you do this. I guarantee it. Cut down on your sugar intake. Do not buy foods that have added sugar. Just read the labels. Don't buy foods that have added sugar. Stick with whole foods. Go to the periphery of the supermarket. Avoid the center aisles. That's what I tell all of my patients. So if you just do those things and get outside, get some real sun, get some vitamin D production, you're going to improve your health. It's not that hard. Everyone can do it. And you need to do it because ultimately your metabolic health is what is going to protect you from anything that they throw at us, including this ridiculous monkeypox. Well, it sounds to me, Dr. Ammerling, like you are talking about good old common sense. And if we can get back to that, we might just survive this. I thank you so very much for your input today, Dr. Ammerling. I respect you and I appreciate everything you have to say and everything you are doing. For those of you that might want to uh, get in touch with Dr. Ammerling, his handles are at Dr. Ammerling at Dr. Ammerling on Twitter and on Truth Social. I encourage you to follow him and to listen what he's got to say in the future. It is worthwhile. 
Dr. Amling, thank you for your wisdom, for your insights, and for your advice on navigating these treacherous waters. It has been my pleasure speaking with you today, and I trust you will continue to fight this good fight. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. Well, the future of medicine in America is shaky at best. And I often wonder if reform will come only through another wave of Nuremberg trials. I can say with certainty that every single doctor in America who has been and will be persecuted for doing what is right before a righteous God will also live a life without regret. The story is still being written and the closing chapters are still a mystery to us. Other than we know that evil will one day be conquered. In this, I do really greatly rejoice, and it keeps me going. Losing a life for the sake of freedom is really small change compared to the horrendous price that is going to be paid by those who are committed to causing suffering and death in this world. And those who participate in evil have no peace. They have no rest. They know not contentment. Neither have they who live in constant fear. And the time for change is right now. The day to do good is today. And that includes fighting to protect all of those who cannot defend themselves. Life is very short, so I hope that you will make it count for something of eternal value. Please do not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Don't be a, a, a silent majority individual but do be a voice in the wilderness, as is Dr. Richard Ammerling, speaking what is good and living by the Christian standard. By doing so, you are going to change the lives of so many who are lost right now. As the enemy does his worst, this is a time when we must do our best in all things. You've been listening to Unity Without Compromise with Dr. Steve Latulip and Dr. Richard Ammerling. Have a blessed week. Adieu.